If you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to turn in it to Judges chapter 6. And if you want to use the, the Bible in front of you, if you want to turn to page 205 and we'll leak over onto page 206. The, the spring before our family moved to Sioux City. So back in the spring of 2007, our son Josh was finishing the eighth grade. And the high school football coach invited all the graduating eighth graders who were interested in playing football to come to the high school to have a meeting with the coach, and they were supposed to bring their parents along with them. And as Josh and I were heading into that meeting, Josh was in front of me, and I could see over Josh's shoulder the head coach looking at him. And the head coach kind of did that one up and one down thing, you know, kind of checking him out. And he was evaluating, kind of seeing his facial expression. He was evaluating, trying to figure out, you know, was Josh a kid that maybe had some potential? Could he see it? Now, since puberty was always a slow thing in our household, uh, he was far from fully grown. But it's like, well, he, the coach had some symptoms, sense of optimism that maybe there'd be some size there. Maybe there was some potential. And then Josh turned and the coach saw me. And every sense of optimism kind of seemed to disappear. <laughs> Seems the coach had in his head some prerequisites of what football players should look like. And obviously, I didn't have any of them. And the coach seemed kind of disappointed. He went from being confident that Josh could maybe be a part of the future of the high school team to, well, maybe not so much. Now, to connect that, and there really is a connection between that and judges, I want you to think about a couple of things with me. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, through the amazing thing that Jesus did for us, God offers to us a life of freedom in Jesus. And you know what? That really should sound good to our ears, that there is freedom, because there is nothing better in life than the freedom God offers us in Jesus. But just like that coach was disappointed when he saw me, you and I might be drawn to freedom. We might be drawn to say, I want this freedom. I I, want to experience that. But in our heads, we have prerequisites. We think this is what freedom, if you're going to have freedom, you've got to look a certain way. And we look in the mirror and go, I don't see it. So maybe I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to have this life of freedom. So we've been going through Judges. We've been talking about God wants us to live in freedom and wants us to enjoy that. And the problem is the book of Judges has been filled with an awful lot of failure. And you might be going, I want freedom. I desire that. But sometimes I feel more like failure is what I'm going to have. I might look like I have the potential for freedom, but really I don't. I kind of come up short. I kind of come up on the failure side. You know, one of the reasons we're doing this series is really to equip all of us to live and enjoy the freedom God offers us in Christ. And folks, I want us to understand this morning, God knows that we can struggle with freedom. He he knows the tension. And God, I think, also understands that we can be asking ourselves, can I really live in freedom? Can I really do freedom stuff? Or am I just going to fail? 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest, folks, that question resonates and bounces through my head an awful lot. Can I do freedom or am I just going to fail? Now, this morning, we're starting a a well-known part of the book of Judges. Maybe when you think of the book of Judges, one of the characters, one of the people you would recognize would be Gideon. We're starting his narrative, his story, the unfolding of his life. And the part of the story that we're going to look at today, I really do believe, directly addresses the question, really gets at the issue of, can I do freedom and live in freedom, or am I just going to fail? It really puts that in front of us. And I want us to understand that through this story in Gideon's life, God wants to affirm for all of us that we really can do freedom stuff, that we really can live a life of freedom. That's where he wants to take us this morning. Now, for that to be true, for us to be able to live on the freedom side and not on the fail side, there needs to be four realities that shape our lives. And that's really where this first account is going to take us. It's going to walk us through those four realities. Well, what are those? Reality number one, if we're going to live a life of freedom, is this. We can fail. Now, on one hand, that sounds really weird because we said, hey, we want to be equipped to live in freedom, and you're starting out by saying we can fail. Yes, I am. Just so you know, I don't write the material God does. Because see, that's exactly where Judges 6 starts. Read with me, Judges chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. Now, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no substance in, no substance in the land and no sheep or oxen or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come up like locusts in number. They would, both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste of the land as they came in. Now, again, we're in the book of Judges, and we said there's a pattern, and guess what? Here comes the pattern again. The people doing evil in the sight of God. Just like the old song has the line in it, prone to wander, they were prone to wander, and not only were they prone to wander, they wandered. They walked away from God, and because of that, they had consequences. Again, obvious thing to say, but part of wandering, part of failing, part of sinning means facing consequences. So as verse 1 ends, God puts them into the hand of the Midianites. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the movie, The Bug's Life, but verses 2 to 5 read an awful lot like the plot of Bug's Life. I mean, just like the grasshoppers in general hopper come in and take everything in bug's life, that's exactly what the Midianites did. They just came and they devoured everything. So much so that instead of Israel living in freedom, enjoying the promised land, they're hiding in caves. They're afraid to go out and engage. Now, this may sound very simple, but it is worth noting, folks, we need to understand that sin and its consequences complicate life. We can fail and we can complicate our lives. 
There's an old saying, and I don't know who it's actually attributed to, but it's worth recognizing. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Part of the reality, part of the reality we need to recognize if we're going to live in freedom is that we can fail. But that's really not all what we need to recognize that we can fail. It's what do you do when you fail? What do you do at that moment? Do we try to hide it? Adam and Eve did, so like there's least example. They tried to hide some things in Genesis 3. Should we try to blame somebody for it? It's their fault. Or do we try to rationalize it in some way? Do we try to spin it? Now, we don't know what Israel tried to do because they had failed here. And we don't know what they tried to do. But whatever they tried to do, it really wasn't working. I mean, they were trapped in this place for seven years and life was not getting any better. They weren't getting to freedom. Look at verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. For seven years, they'd been being decimated, and finally they called out to God. Folks, backing out of Judges just for a second, big picture of the Bible. God wants to give us freedom in Christ. And if we're going to be equipped to live in the freedom that God gives us, we need to know we need God. We don't do this on our own. We need Him. Which means we need to recognize we can fail because they did. We can. We can wander too. And what we need to do when we have any awareness that we are wandering is we need to cry out to God, the God who can redeem, the God who can rescue. If you and I are going to live in freedom, we must recognize that we can fail. But in our failing, we call out to the one who can rescue. Reality number two that needs to shape our lives. And this is kind of an odd statement because we're going to use the word reality twice. But reality number two is we may need reality before relief. We may need reality before we actually get any relief. We said there's a pattern in Judges, and the pattern basically plays out that if Israel cries out to God, says, God, we need help, then the deal seems to be, the pattern up to this point is, then God brings a deliverer and the deliverer gets to work. That's kind of how it's supposed to be. I mean, from Israel's standpoint, if you're in a bad spot, you cry out to God, and then God shows up and he helps. Well, that's not exactly how the pattern plays out, at least not as quickly. Look at verse 7 and 8. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, and the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. Now, you put yourself in the scene. Israel, so to speak, has been driving on Interstate 29 down to Omaha, and they have two flat tires. Now, thankfully, they're members of AAA, so they call AAA, and they say, hey, we need roadside assistance, and they say, great. And so they see a tow truck pull up, and in their minds, hey, if a tow truck pulls out, a mechanic's going to hop out. The deliverer's here. And who pops out? A prophet. And he has no idea how to change a tire. I mean, it's kind of a ripoff. And if you put yourself in Israel's sandals, so to speak, they're like, what's the deal, God? 
We cried out to help. Aren't you the God who's full of mercy and grace? Aren't you God, the one in Judges chapter 2, verse 16, who said you'll deliver people from plunder? Like, aren't you supposed to do what you're supposed to do, God? What's the deal? Why does God, when we need a mechanic, why does he send a prophet? Well, let me read from verse again, but all the way down to verse 10. Maybe it'll answer that question. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The deal is, before God's going to buy the plane tickets to rescue them, God says, let me tell you a little bit about history, and let me remind you of my grace. You see, in short, it was God's grace that rescued them from Egypt. And as verse 10 makes clear, God's grace also was pointing them not only to receive freedom, but also live in freedom. Don't live in fear of those gods. Don't live that way. Live in freedom. But how did they respond to God's offer, to God's grace? They ignored it. They pushed it aside. They forgot about it. They were making the choice to walk away from God and his grace. Now, at this moment, God's not being a meanie. What they needed to see and what you and I probably need to see too is that God is the rescuer and God longs to bring relief and rest. He wants to bring both of those. But please understand the relief and rest that God wants to bring us is lasting. It's enduring. You could say it's eternal. He doesn't want us to just have a quick thing. He wants it forever. That is something they need to grasp. That is something you and I need to grasp. Now, please consider an implication out of the fact that God sent a prophet, that God confronted them. Ask the question, why does God convict a sin? Why does God point it out and challenge us in those ways? Why does he do that? God convicts us of our sin to move us or to point us to the fullness of his grace, to the fullness of his goodness in our lives. See, a lot of times you and I are in a bad spot and we just want quick relief. But God doesn't necessarily want us to just have quick relief. He wants us to have lasting relief, lasting rest. Some of you are familiar, and we're not going to look at it right now just for time-wise, but if you want to write down Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus there offers people a whole way of living in freedom. He's offering that to you and me, lasting freedom, and that's a reality we need to see. You know, there are times where God's words seem heavy. I got to think if you're one of the people of Israel and you're sitting there on the side of the road and the sun's beating down on you and you've got two flat tires and a mechanic pretty heavy. 
But the weight of those words is intentional. The weight of these words is designed to help people see the reality. Not only seeing reality, but seeing ultimate reality, seeing God's beauty and God's grace. You know, at times there are things in life that feel very harsh. Reality can feel very harsh sometimes. But if you and I don't see that reality, we won't see God clearly. Maybe more so, if we never see what God truly wants for us, that God wants lasting eternal relief, lasting eternal rest, if we don't grasp that, we will never grasp the amazingness of God's love for us. If we're going to live a life of freedom, folks, we need to acknowledge, hey, we can fail, which means I need to call out to God for help. I need to repent and confess my sin. It also means I need to see reality before I see relief because I need to see the bigness of God. I need to see his grace and to realize he is so much more for us than we realize. We need that. We need his goodness. Reality number three that needs to shape us if we're going to live a life of freedom and do freedom things is we need to receive God's presence. We need to receive God's presence in our lives. Now, I'm guessing, I'm making an assumption. When I say words or we hear words like relief and rest, we probably start thinking in categories of comfort. It sounds nice. We might go so far as to say, hey, comfort means I'm going to have ideal circumstances. I think that's where we often go in our thought process. But folks, what I want to do is I want to challenge you. What you and I need more than ideal circumstances, what we should be thinking about, what we desire, what we need isn't ideal circumstances, but what we need is the presence of God in our lives which means I need a relationship with God where I have peace with him. I need Romans 5.1 to be expressed in my life. This is where Gideon enters the story. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. The Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth at Ophrah, which belongs to Joaz the Aberzite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. We need to understand that freedom and doing freedom stuff is always going to flow out from God being present with us. Okay? A life of freedom always flows out of God being present with us. That's how it works. That's not just a judge's thing. It's not just a story of Gideon thing. That theme is repeated throughout Scripture. We need to understand that. The story continues, verse 13 to 16. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, 
Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. At this point, Gideon is really not really getting the idea of God's presence. He's not thinking in those categories. See, in Gideon's mind, if God was present, that should mean my circumstances are ideal. And here he is hiding out from the Midianites, beating out wheat on a wine press. I mean, he's doing everything to hide it so he can have a meal. And he's thinking, God, if I'm this hungry, if this is this difficult, then you must not be present. We can do that too, can't we? If life is hard, we conclude God must not be present. And we get mad at God. Gideon was struggling here. He's like, God's forsaken us. Now, the angel of the Lord, as verse 14 will make clear, is actually God. We would probably say this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is here, in essence, talking with Gideon. And you'd think that he might want to correct Gideon's mindset right there and say, you're wrong, I am here, you know, da-da. He doesn't really go there directly. What he does is he gets a little more specific with his directives. He's going to get Gideon to the point of understanding But even with that, Gideon is still not buying what, in essence, Jesus is telling him. And in verse 15, Gideon sounds a whole lot like Moses did at the burning bush in Exodus 3. In essence, Gideon is saying, God, I think you got the wrong guy for the job. It's not me. I'm not up to this. Now, to be fair to Gideon, his response is partly an excuse, but it's also partly honest. I mean, we are not sufficient or able on our own to do this thing of freedom. We're not. That's a true statement. We cannot do this. But as verse 16 makes clear, with God's presence, we can do freedom stuff. Gideon could do what was there to do because God was with him. Gideon didn't understand that yet, but he was starting to get there. That's something we need to understand. Now, here's the thing. Verse 60 kind of, in a sense, points us to the big picture of the gospel. Okay? The gospel starts, kind of the the seed of the gospel starts with Jesus coming to earth and going to the cross, dying in our place for our sins and rising again. Because that event happened, it's possible there's a message that gets communicated that you and I, though we're separated from God, literally can be reconnected. We can be reconciled to God. Again, that's a part of the gospel. And say, well, how does that work? How can I be reconciled to God? I'm reconciled to God. You can be reconciled to God when we repent of our sins and trust the Lord Jesus alone as our Savior. And we need to understand when that happens, when you trust Christ in that instant, God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit to become a part of your life, which means God is present with you. So when God is calling you and I to live in freedom and do those things, he's not thinking, hey, good luck. He's thinking, I'm here with you. I'm here to make this happen. Please understand, if you've trusted Christ, you are not alone. He is here to walk with you, to empower you, to enable you. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, you can live a life of freedom. You might feel like, but I'm always in the failure side. God redeems, and God can empower us to go here. Folks, that is a reality we need to recognize, but we also need to receive. We need to receive God's presence. We need to blow out the things in our minds that say God can't be here because my circumstances aren't right, and to realize he is here. Now, back up to Judges, to jump back into the narrative. Gideon is kind of receiving this. He's kind of getting it, but he's got a lot of insecurities. He's got a lot of things inside that are making it hard. Verse 17 and 18. And he said to him, if now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon, in essence, is saying, I, I want to make some kind of an offering. And so he's going to leave, he's going to go away, and he's going to prepare sort of this big offering meal, and he's going to bring it back to the angel of the Lord. He doesn't know yet who he's talking with fully. And he's going to bring it back. And when he does that, Jesus, we would know it's Jesus, says, put it on a rock. So he puts it on a rock. And then in verse 21, something incredible takes place. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. I mean, Gideon asked God to hang around. He does this, and in an instant, God made it clear in verse 21 who he is. Jesus is like, this is who I am. Like, I'm really here present with you. Whoosh. Verse 22. Then Gideon perceived what was that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for I know I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Please understand this. God's presence should be a great blessing, the sweetest blessing of our lives. And yet in this moment, Gideon is terrified. He's scared. Why? Well, I think he's terrified because he doesn't understand part of the purpose of God's presence. He doesn't understand why God is there. Look at verse 23. God's going to dial him in on this. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Part of the purpose of God making his presence in the life of a person in our life is peace. And when the Bible says peace, there is a sense in which, yes, there is a sense of calmness in that, a sense of dialing us down and giving us that peace. But please understand the Bible thinks more broadly about peace than that. It's also thinking about making us whole, making us complete. See, part of the reason God puts his Holy Spirit in the life of every follower of Christ is to bring us peace that means we come to wholeness in Christ. Part of the equipping work of God in our lives, giving us peace, is the bringing us to be whole like Jesus was, to transform us. Verse 24, the story continues. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Orpha, which belongs to the Abergites. Gideon was starting to get this. He was starting to get 
receiving God's presence and realizing the Lord is peace. Like, if God is present, that means there's peace. Which means if God is present in our lives, we have peace today. And that peace is he wants to bring wholeness. Now, to help Gideon receive and and remember that he'd received God's presence, he made an altar. Now, let me be very clear. We are not called. There's no place in the Bible in the New Testament that talks about followers of Christ making altars. I think there is an implication or an application out of this. Gideon built that to remind himself that God is a God of peace and that God is present. So maybe a question we all need to ask ourselves is how can we remind ourselves of God's presence and the peace that brings to our lives? What do you and I need to do to remember God is present and God brings peace so that every single day you and I are aware God is with me and that means there's peace. Reality number four. If we're going to be shaped and live in freedom, we've got to face our sin and ask for God's help. We have got to face reality before relief, and we've got to receive God's presence. And then number four, we need to take a step of obedience. We need to take a step in obedience. If we're going to live in freedom, if we're going to experience freedom, you don't experience freedom standing still in that sense. You take a step in the direction God's leading. Verse 25 to 27. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you have cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family the men of, and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. You know what? Obedience may not always be an easy thing for us to do. The implied sense of these verses is that this statue to Baal and the Asherah pole next to it were run, in essence, by Gideon's dad. This was like the family compound, and that's where it was. So there was a little tension. But Gideon, if he was going to obey, and if you and I are going to obey, we've got to face the reality there is only one true God. And Gideon had to face that and say, okay, I'm going to take a step of obedience. Yes, he did it in fear, yes. But he took a step of obedience. And because he took a step of obedience, it created enormous tension. Jump down to verse 30 and 31. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. He was an interesting guy. We know very little about him, but he is probably a theological opportunist. But in this moment, he's also realizing something. He's making a very profound statement. If Baal really is a god, if Baal truly is who we think, you know, who they were saying he was, then he can defend himself. 
He'll take care of himself. Please don't miss the implication. If Gideon was the one that took down the statue to Baal and the Asherah under the direction of the Lord God, under the direction of Yahweh, then we're being told in this moment there is only one true God. And that is the God that calls us to follow him. That is the God who sent Jesus. That is the God we worship. There is only one true God. And folks, if we're going to live in freedom, what we need to do is we need to take steps of obedience following that true God. He is the only one. If we're going to live in we need to follow him. Now, there is a lot more to come from Gideon. We'll be with Gideon a couple more weeks. But I want to underline, I want to make sure this morning we get the big idea. All of us, we can live in freedom and do freedom things. We can It's not an impossibility. We can do it. For that to happen, what needs to be true in our lives, though, is we're going to need to face our sin. We've got to realize that. We've got to confess and repent. It also means we need to grasp reality. Realize, look what God is offering. We need to see that with clarity. And we need to embrace his presence. And then we need to walk in obedience following him. And we need to underline again, because God is present. He's present to help us. He's present to drive this. Please understand again, you can do much in Christ. That's why if you haven't trusted him yet this morning, I'd urge you, turn in faith and trust Christ. If you do, failure's not where you have to live. You can live in freedom. And if you've already trusted Christ, then can I urge you, to come alongside and learn the lessons of Gideon. Face the sin. Face the reality. Realize what God is offering us. Embrace his presence in your life and start walking in obedience following him. Would you pray with me? Father, I am grateful to you for your word and your truth. I'm grateful to you for your incredible kindness and goodness. Lord, we need you in so, so many ways. Lord, it's easy for us to say, could I? Could I really live in freedom? We might not feel that we're up to it. We may not feel we meet some prerequisite. But the truth is, Lord, through your word and its power in our lives, through your spirit, we truly can live lives of freedom. Lord, I pray and ask today that you would move us to trust you. You would move us to embrace you and your goodness in our lives. In the very precious name of the Savior, we pray.